You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. For our last lesson in political philosophy, we'll explore what is called the just war theory. It has to do with political societies in relationship to each other and raises a whole host of philosophical questions. The just war theory has a long and distinguished pedigree. Its roots are in classical Greek and Roman philosophy, in Aristotle and Plato, developed by Augustine and Aquinas and it's been developed by generations of philosophers hence. In the 20th century, some leading American philosophers and theologians such as Paul Ramsey and John Courtney Murray, James Turner Johnson and others have developed this theory going back most classically to Aquinas. So I'd like to begin with some reflections on the Greek roots culminating in Aristotle of the problem of war, and then consider briefly Augustine, who had a deep influence on Aquinas, his view of politics, and we've not had an opportunity to say much about Augustine, but look at Aquinas' classic formulation in question 40 of the Prima Secunda, and then end with some of the modern problems which again I think Maritain has so well explored. Although the classical philosophers never used the phrase just war theory, they did talk about justice by nature versus convention and see that that applied, for example, with Aristotle to the question of slaves who were acquired in war and that often that was a conventional justice not just by nature. I think that's opening this question of what is just in war. The ancients generally were preoccupied with questions of right rule. We've seen that's indeed the theme of Aristotle's politics on rule. They clearly recognized a distinction between might and right, the superiority of persuasion to coercion, the limited claims of partisan politics, and the disorders of greed and ambition as forces animating moral and political life. An incident in Thucydides perhaps best exemplifies the problem as the Greeks saw it, the so-called Melian Dialogue. The Athenian generals come to discuss the prospects for peace. They have a huge fleet behind them and vastly outnumber the Melians and basically tell the Melians, this is in the midst of the Peloponnesian War, that the Melians have no hope but to surrender, for their superior force will dictate the terms of justice. And these Athenian generals say, quote, you know as well as we do that right, as the world goes, is only in question between equals and power. The strong do what they can, and the weak suffer what they must. That popular teaching of might 
makes right. And the Athenians even invoked the Greek gods to say, we just do as the gods do, which is the powerful do whatever they want and the weak must suffer. The Melians refuse the terms of peace and they are subsequently destroyed, their villages plundered, males put to death, and the rest of the population sold into slavery. The Athenians sent out a colony of 500 and occupied the territory. Now this passage is often taken as a teaching of political realism, as a forerunner to Machiavellianism. I read this passage as a criticism of the Athenians, a criticism not only from some moral high ground, but from within the very give and take of politics. There is a previous passage in the Peloponnesian War in which the Athenians have another debate among themselves about what to do with prisoners and hostages at Mytilene, a group of rebels who had rebelled against their tutelage. In this case, the Athenians at first decide to put them all to death, the guilty as well as the innocent. And Cleon makes the argument for such a cruel act. Another speaker argues just on the basis of practical wisdom that it would not be wise to put them all to death because that would lead to the weakening of loyalty to the Athenians and other cities. So the Athenians do relent. One can also look at this passage as being the beginning of the end for the Athenians. We know that they went on in their pride to overextend themselves in the conquest of Syracuse and are led to a most bitter defeat. A scholar, Paul Ray, has an article in which he says Thucydides is a critic of Machiavelli real politique. In this article, he says that Thucydides does have a more realistic view about human appetites and that human beings are inclined to desire everything and that necessity requires certain adjustments and deeds that are not the best. Ray says this Athenian Thucydides was not willing to reject moderation in a sense of measure and proportion on the ground that there simply is not a middle road, nor was he inclined to make the extreme situation normative. Basically, he says Thucydides is different from Machiavelli because he sees the need for some kind of moderation and that cruelty well used unleashes the all too human lust for unlimited human mastery and that this will fail. I think what we have here in Thucydides then is a recognition that war is a stern teacher, as he says, but in the midst of it all, there is need for statesmen who have a sense of moderation and human limits. So I think this is the beginning in some ways of just war as the sense of moderate realism. You know, one could say one further thing about Thucydides is if the Melian dialogue reflects true Athenian principle, 
that same argument could be used by partisans within Athens to do evil to each other within the city. And indeed, Athens did find itself subject to a civil war. But I think this leads right to Aristotle's notion of the mixed regime, that if each side claims its own ends are the only goals, its notion of justice the only notion, and seeks to impose them by force, they must be drawn down into the dark pit of tyranny. Therefore, there must be some counteracting principle to force alone. Perhaps it's this incident as well as the dysfunction of the Homeric heroic man that led Plato to counter the supremacy of the warrior with the ideal of the philosopher king in the Republic. Those who read this great dialogue also know that Plato sought to refute the sophist Thrasymachus, who says justice is the interest of the stronger. He argues against Polymarchus, who says justice is simply doing good to your friends and harm to your enemies. Plato saw the key task of politics was educating guardians how to combine spiritedness with gentleness, how to form citizens who had ordered souls. It is a challenge that requires replacing Homeric heroes with Socratic dialogue so that reason will rule over Thumos. The warrior's ethos based upon a desire for victory alone is clearly rejected as a disorder by Plato. Turning to Aristotle, the passages of the reading for this lesson is the recognition that the best regime is not based upon expansion and empire, and the best life is not continual concern over rule over others, but it must have as its point of reference some higher good, the contemplative good, which has a very practical political implication, that war is for the sake of peace, war is not an end in itself, rule over others is not the best life. Well, it's St. Augustine who probably best develops what's called now the just war theory, and he does it by an extensive study of Roman history. Being a good Roman citizen himself, he was well acquainted with the history of Rome and responding to the charge that Christianity breeds bad citizens and weakens the state, Augustine wrote his great and arduous work entitled The City of God. He criticizes the pagan political order for both its aims and methods. By the way, Machiavelli is inspired by the great wicked deeds of Rome. Augustine seeks to learn from the fall of Rome an opposite lesson than Machiavelli. I think Augustine and Machiavelli are the two great rivals in the interpretation of Rome. Augustine saw the Roman order dominated by pride. There was much to admire in it, great virtues of courage, even justice, but the worm of pride corrupted its practical deliberations. It was motivated even by a desire to dominate and rule over others, so that even glory, which led to great acts of virtue, was pulled down by the desire 
to dominate. Here's a quote from Augustine. He says, glory they ardently love, for glory they wish to live, for glory they did not hesitate to die. Every other desire was repressed by the strength of their passion for glory. Their eagerness for praise and desire for glory led them to accomplish many wonderful things, laudable and glorious according to human judgment. Now here again, I think Augustine is similar to Aristotle in his criticism that the problem of Rome was its expansionism. Here's a quote, Augustine said, it required the Romans to, quote, roll with dark fear and cruel lust in warlike slaughters and blood, unquote. So the glory of empire is like glass in a fragile splendor. The wiser state chooses for moderate wealth and status rather than expansion. And I think Augustine sees part of achieving that moderation is to see that there is a higher good than the good of rule and empire, a good that the wise pagans acknowledged. And as Paul went to Athens and spoke about the unknown God, I think so too Augustine can learn from the pagans this moderation beyond expansion. Those pagans who loved, he says, spiritual beauty or the noble good and contemplation. Nevertheless, Augustine does say, the temporal peace is not to be esteemed lightly and requires stern and lasting necessities. Augustine too is a moderate realist. The use of force, he says, is necessary to maintain peace. The greatest evil in war is the opportunity for love of violence, revengeful cruelty, enmity, wild resistance, and the lust of power. It's a quote from Augustine that we will find repeated in Thomas's treatment. So let's turn to Thomas Aquinas and see how he uses Augustine in his analysis of the just war. If we turn to the Summa, the second part of the second part, question 40, Thomas asks whether it's always sinful to wage war. The very phrasing of the question is interesting because it shows a suspicion about the morality of war. It certainly goes against the precepts of Christian and common practice. But in addition, if we look back to his content of natural law in the Prima Secunda, 94.2, and think about the range of human goods and flourishing, war certainly wreaks havoc upon virtually every level or type of human good, from life to family to truth and association and respect for God himself. You know, later, Solzhenitsyn, reflecting on World War I, said the use of poison gas could only result from the West, which had despaired of its faith and acted in bitterness against God. So why is it not always sinful to wage war? Augustine comes into play here that the Bible does not forbid War, what it forbids in the turning of the other cheek, is to be willing to give up the attitude of revenge and anger. But on Thomas's account, a Christian citizen 
may be required as a matter of duty to defend the great goods established by the political order. Let's see how he does this. He mentions three conditions necessary for the just war. One, it must be declared by a proper authority and not by private citizens or groups. Second, it requires a just cause. And third, there should be a rightful intention, the advancement of good or the avoidance of evil, and not the lust for domination or glory. Proper authority. Thomas says, if we read his line, it's the authority of a sovereign by whose command the war is to be waged. This will exclude war as an opportunity for indulging feelings of angry hatred. I think what's reflected here is this profound political teaching of Aristotle that we've seen brought up into Aquinas and now today by Maritain and Simon that politics is an affair of reason, of public reason devoted to a measured good, that it is a matter of the common good, that authority, as Yves Simone explains, is necessary for a community to act with unity. So authority must make formal consideration about what is to the common good. Private individuals must act for individual or partial goods, and that's proper in the ordering of things by subsidiarity. But the magistrate has, quote, care for the common good, unquote, and a duty, quote, to watch over the common weal, unquote. There is a profound political teaching that the nature and purpose of the political community are the terms which set war in perspective. Just war and proper authority is not primarily a matter of legalism, but a condition for political legitimacy or concern for the proper derivation of political authority. Paul Ramsey says the use of armed force is part of the larger issue of the right use of force. He says force is part of the bene esse, or well-being of political life. I think this is what distinguishes the just war from pacifism. The just war rests upon two basic axioms. One is an empirical historical claim that the order of justice to be established and maintained may require the use of force or the threat of its use and that such use of force is morally required if the commitment to a just peace is serious. C.S. Lewis makes a similar point in a marvelous essay entitled Why I Am Not a Pacifist in The Weight of Glory, that the true commitment, this is the contradiction of pacifism, if it's truly committed to the good of life and just peace, it must be willing to take the means necessary to establish it. So secondly, there is a moral judgment in the just war that there are goods worth the risk of war and that peace at any price is unacceptable. So indeed, if war is a prima facie evil because it destroys such a wide range of human goods, so must the magistrate protect these goods from destruction by others. The pacifist misses the complex reality of the possibility and political conditions 
for human flourishing. Aquinas' second criteria follows as the next obvious point, a just cause is required. Quote, namely that those who are attacked should be attacked because they deserve it on account of some fault. The judgment is left in general terms. Aquinas cites Augustine that if a nation refuses to make amends for wrongs inflicted or has failed to restore what is unjustly seized, these would be an obvious matter for the use of force. In Article 4 of Question 40, which is not in the text, but I will put in the notes, Thomas has a very important passage where he says the following, that war is not just self-defense of physical life, it's a defense of the very order of justice, that the very goods of flourishing are at stake, requiring sacrifice. This is the quote from Thomas, there is much more reason for guarding the common weal or the common good, whereby many are saved from being slain and innumerable evils, both temporal and spiritual, are prevented than the bodily safety of an individual. Maritain, in an essay on immortality, says that a civilization knows the value of life and does not take risk unduly but on the other hand, it is willing to take risk for lives that are worthy of human achievement, such as justice, human dignity, and honor. The application of the principle, of course, is a matter of prudence, of political prudence. And that's why I think the third element, the third criteria is about character. It is rightful intention. The rightful intention is ultimately peace, and he sees, again citing Augustine, the ultimate danger in war is aggrandizement and cruelty. Now, one thing that Thomas doesn't list here is what is later called the use in bellow, or that one should be restrained or moderate in the conduct of war. I do think these three, that this principle can be unpacked from the longer list. Certainly the political end of the common good will limit how force is used. So is the just cause. I think Paul Ramsey sums it up by saying that modern violations of non-combatant immunity, that is the attack upon the innocent, which Elizabeth Anscombe just says flatly is equivalent to murder, is wrong, not only by the principle of morality, but by our deepest political principle, which is a moral principle. Ramsey says it's a reflection of totalitarianism to reduce everyone without discrimination and everyone to the whole extent of his being to a mere means of achieving political and military goals. Now, the just war theory has been declared dead because there are new developments, which I can only briefly say something about Maritain's contribution. These have to do with new scientific weapons, the new place of the nation state in an age of global interdependence, and the prospect for nonviolent resistance to injustice. I do think these developments do not nullify the just war theory, 
but highlight its internal strengths and resources and call for a development of this doctrine. As for the weapons of mass destruction, I will just briefly mention here this problem of policy and prudence, that this is one place where I don't think the teaching can change, but it's a challenge to statesmen to find ways to have a policy of discriminate attack. The second one on nation states. I think this is where I'll briefly here mention Maritain's last chapter in which he says it is the case that the state today no longer has the self-sufficiency or autonomy of the Aristotelian polis and that this is also a question of an exaggerated sense of sovereignty of the state which is a modern perversion that there's nothing above the state. Maritain thinks for both reasons we need to begin seriously considering a world political society. I do not think he is utopian in this. It is just an initial exploration of what way is the nation state bound by higher laws, both of the laws of nations and international law, but also a higher spiritual community which recognizes the good of humanity. Maritain makes many qualifications here so that it is not to be taken as a utopian suggestion. Nevertheless, I think it is a troubling proposal which has problems within it that the nation state is still the place where that sense of human education, of national history and destiny still finds its normal fulfillment. I think though to end I can mention the nonviolent resistance briefly does not undo just war teaching but I think develops it from within in its criticism of Machiavellianism. I think it shows precisely the just war principle of moderate realism against those who would seek a Machiavellianism. I think to conclude here then, I will quote John Courtney Murray who says that war and political disorder does have a unparalleled vertical dimension. It goes to the heart of the very roots of order and disorder in the world. The nature of man, his destiny, and the meaning of human history. I think as we study political philosophy, we come up against the limits of politics and must see a deeper explanation for war and disorder. Vatican II identifies this as human sin. Aquinas would lead us on to a consideration of the theological virtues. And as Maritain points out, the political society desperately needs the superior role of the church to inspire the deeper principles of good order. I will quote here at the end Solzhenitsyn who says, the problem with the modern age is that men have forgotten God. And he says, quote, to the ill-considered hopes of the last two centuries which have brought us to the brink of nuclear and non-nuclear death, 
we can propose only a determined quest for the warm hand of God, which we have so rashly and self-confidently spurned. I think Maritain and Simone's project to develop a theocentric humanism, an integral humanism, is one of the great achievements of Catholic political philosophy in the 20th century. And these two books that we've studied will be read for years to come. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.